I love kiwis. If I could, I would plant a kiwi vine right in my backyard. Ripe kiwis, when you cut them in half and spoon out that sweet green fruit from the fuzzy brown skin, definitely my favorite. But most kiwi are being grown in places like Italy, France, and New Zealand, places that don't have the bitter, cold winters that we have here in New England. But, and this is something that I'm almost positive you did not know, there are 50 species of kiwi, including some from Siberia. But the ones that can handle the cold? You can't buy them in stores, at least for now. But the people who do know about them seem to love them. Our instructor was saying, yeah, these are kiwis. And I was like, oh my God, kiwis, I've never seen anything like that. And popped one in my mouth. And it was just, <laughs> you just wonder, like, how can you be on a planet for three decades and no one just ever tell you that there's something like that, <laughs> like that out there? It was really upsetting. Because <laughs> it's, like, it's not like you can go in a market and buy them. This is Iago Hale. He's at the University of New Hampshire, and he's trying to bring these new kiwis to the state. And these kiwis, you probably wouldn't even recognize them as kiwis. They're tiny, and the skin is hairless and edible. So what would you call them? I personally like wee-wees, just because, you know, but I've been told by our, <laughs> our patent office that that's not an acceptable name. Welcome to Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Today we're talking about wee-wees, which actually go by the name kiwi berries, or as I shall call them henceforth, hardy kiwi. They sound totally harmless and adorable. But we're talking to two people with very different visions for this fruit. One thinks it could be the next big thing, which could save the economy in places that are struggling to make it work. The other is terrified. We're going to talk about how this sweet little fruit figures in a surprisingly complex debate. And we'll hear both sides, both sweet and unsavory. Okay, so what you're looking at right now is just about one acre of the UNH uh, experiment station Kiwi Vineyard. This is our research vineyard. Down in Durham, there are these posts, about six feet tall, with wires in between them. And every few feet, there's a vine that grows up to the wire and then sends out shoots sideways along it. You might mistake them for grapevines, like at a winery, but they're a little different. Kiwis grow like a canopy that stretches out over your head instead of like a wall in front of you. Regular kiwis, the ones you can get at the grocery store, come from China and are also grown commercially in New Zealand, Italy, Chile, Greece. And it's big business. We're talking millions of tons of kiwis grown and sold. The species of kiwi Iago is trying to bring to market come from places way up north in the Asian continent, places where it's really, really cold. Cold like New Hampshire's north country, where Iago thinks these hardy kiwi could grow even in the lousy soils up there. Land. The, the kiwis aren't that fussy. You know, kind of average pH. They don't need particularly fertile soils. So there's a lot of things about them that I think fit New Hampshire quite well. Um, a bit about the north country. We're talking about a part of the state that used to be a real economic center in New Hampshire about 100 years ago. But slowly, the mills have been shutting down, people started leaving, businesses were boarded up, factories were left behind empty. The median income is $23,000 a year less than in the rest of New Hampshire, and 4% of the population moved away between 2010 and 2014. Times are tough up there, and when you stroll through towns, you feel it. 
which is why Iago wants to bring them something great, like a fruit that nobody else is growing. And to hear him tell it is way better. Hale says regular kiwi is something like 5 or 6% sugar, whereas hardy kiwi are closer to 25 or even 30% sugar. Sweet. It's, uh, it also has a lot of acid to it, so it has this really complex flavor to it, a lot of tropical kind of flavors, pineapple, mango, papaya. I mean, they're, they're, they're amazing. You really sell I know, they're really amazing. So, um, but this plant is still kind of wild. It does all sorts of things that are pretty inconvenient for farmers. Its vines grow so quickly that it has to be pruned constantly. Many species don't put out a ton of fruit, and the species that do don't handle the winters well. So Iago is trying to breed the various varieties together to come up with something that he can take to market. But I think as soon as we make the headway that I expect we will, this is going to be huge. And there is some precedent for this. Yeah, I mean, you know the the blueberry story, right? No, tell like, the blueberry like, story. Like, so most, most okay. things we know... Okay, here's the blueberry story. In the early 1900s, a USDA researcher teamed up with a farm in New Jersey to start finding and planting wild blueberry bushes that had nice, big, uniformly sized berries. In the span of just six years, they came up with a variety that eventually turned into a huge success commercially. So really, almost in living memory, the blueberry has gone from a totally wild, unfarmable plant to what it is today. These days, North American farmers earn almost a billion dollars a year producing blueberries. My long-term vision here is, A, we're going to create an industry where one doesn't exist. You know, and I, I kind of take the blueberry as a, as a nice story there, that this could be big and this can create a lot of jobs. But I also see this specific, uh, particularly for the North Country, where soils are terrible, pastures are depleted, you know, the environment is quite harsh. If you can get a high-value crop up in Colas County, that, that could be really transformative. Transformative is an interesting word to choose in this situation. There's another group of people who also think cold-hardy kiwis could be transformative. Hey, Tom. Morning, Sam. Morning. This is Tom Lautzenheiser. He's a botanist with Massachusetts Audubon. So I feel like my objective today is to blow your mind because <laughs> you're going you're gonna to look at that in a whole new way when you see what's out here. And uh, it's really, um, it's like walking into a different world. Tom is studying a park in Lenox, Massachusetts, over in the Berkshires. It's a very pretty spot. There's over a thousand acres of forests with miles of trails. And the park used to be a well-manicured estate. There was a Aspen Wall Hotel was a luxury hotel at the top of the hill about maybe three quarters of a mile from where we are now. And uh, and how long ago was that there? That was around 1910. Uh, and I think the hotel burned down shortly thereafter. And if you Google the Hotel Aspen Wall, the image that comes up is this hand-tinted photo that shows the front of the hotel. And on some of the trees in front of the entrance... You can just see this foliage kind of draping over the lower part of these tree trunks. And it's like, huh, I swear there's hardy kiwi. This is Lautzenheiser's theory as to where the hardy kiwi in this park came from. They were planted by some gardener at an old fancy hotel. If that's right, they've been left on their own for about 100 years. And the result is pretty jaw-dropping. Wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so, uh, 
that is all hardy kiwi. Can you describe? <laughs> can you describe this? Well, what you're seeing is uh, essentially a, 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 a patch of forest that has been completely overwhelmed by hardy kiwi. You come up a hill in this park, and the vines are just everywhere. It's like a scene from some movie that's set in a jungle somewhere. Kiwi vines carpet the ground, and they're climbing up every tree and cover them in this shaggy jacket of leaves. There's a space about the size of a football field where whole trees have been pulled down by the weight of the vines. Tom says this part happens during ice storms when the kiwis freeze up and get really heavy. It's so out of control, you can see it in satellite photos. Um, you can really? see it clearly when you know what to look for. Um, you know, a normal forest canopy on an aerial photo is a nice smooth appearance. And then this is, this is like little holes, kind of like drops of acid or, or, you know, caterpillars eating your sweaters or something. <laughs> Just <laughs> The kiwi vines are probably three or four feet thick on the ground, and you can walk around on top of them. And it feels kind of like you're walking around in one of those inflatable bouncy houses. Except sometimes the bounce house trips you. Oh. This is one kiwi plant. It has spread by putting down new roots every time the vine touches the ground again. There are about 20 acres in the park that have been totally covered in kiwi vines. And if you add in the areas that aren't quite that bad, there's somewhere between 50 and 100 acres that are infested. Ooh. Okay. But that's only part of the story. A little bit on the tree there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it See, is. There it is. Sneaking. All over this park, there are kiwi seedlings. That delicious fruit has been picked up by birds or raccoons, and the seeds are making their way outward from the site of the old hotel. Sneaking into the subcanopy. Those seedlings are sprouting and even though they're completely shaded by the other trees in this park, they're surviving and starting to climb toward the light. Even in spots where, at first glance, you might not notice them. Tom and his team have surveyed about 500 acres around the worst infestations and found kiwi sprouts in 40% of that space. Tom is afraid. He's afraid that there's some sort of kiwi apocalypse poised to sweep over New England. I don't want that happening across New England. That seems like a bad outcome for what I view as a novelty. Tom says he's seen hardy kiwi berries on sale before, and he shudders every time he does because he's seen what they can do. He does not like Iago's vision of kiwi as a cash crop. He does not think this fruit should be the next blueberry. And the thing is, is for me, it's like, I'm trying to not get emotional about it because it's like, I mean, this is the evidence that we have a potential problem here. And it's frustrating to, to show people this who then, you know, really just don't make the connection that if they put this vine out on a landscape, this is a potential consequence. This is a familiar story. 
A guy finds a plant on some other continent, and because it's pretty or tasty or useful, he brings it home with him. Then it escapes from control, and it's incredibly invasive, and it runs rampant across a landscape for decades before people finally start to notice and spend tons of money to try to keep it in check. That's what's happened with oriental bittersweet, with glossy buckthorn, and the Himalayan blackberry, which is absolutely everywhere in the Pacific Northwest. My brother-in-law lives in Portland, and, and it's the same thing, like every vacant lot. This is Brian Connolly, a botanist at the University of Framingham in Massachusetts. There's the blackberry, you know, and what do I do? I, I, you know, I was there with my son, who was two or three at the time, and we were going around picking them, eating them, enjoying them, you know. Delicious though they may be, they are clearly invasive and incredibly disruptive of native ecosystems. But invasiveness is not a black or white or yes or no question. Um, there is no silver bullet to say this plant is invasive or not invasive. And we also don't have a crystal ball predicting what these species can actually do. The problem with the Kiwi apocalypse scenario is while they may be going crazy in Lennox Mass, there are lots of places where Kiwi have been planted and have been ignored for years or decades even, and all that happens is you wind up with a few big dreadlocky looking vines but they don't spread like crazy. That's a crux of the matter with the kiwi, is, you know, we have one beastly site where this plant is dominating hundreds to maybe, you know, thousands of acres, but it's basically the only place in the world that it's really acting this aggressive. And so is this, you know, a, a peak into the future, or is this some sort of unique situation so this brings up another possibility for Iago's kiwi. We could wind up denying ourselves a useful plant because it's problematic in just a few places. For instance, there's this tree called the black locust. It makes great firewood. It's rot-resistant, so it's excellent for fence posts. Great, wonderful-smelling flowers um, that you know are fantastic for honey. The flowers are actually edible. In some habitats, like in prairies or out on Cape Cod, it can cause problems. But as just another tree in the forest, it's not so bad. Regardless, it was put onto the Massachusetts list. Some folks from the committee that made that decision still aren't sure it was a good call. In other words, we don't know the end of this story yet. We just know the beginning, and we have to guess what the end will be. Iago, for the record, has been to Lenox, Massachusetts, and has seen the Kiwi apocalypse. In the words of Tom Lautzenheiser, Iago has even lifted his loppers in solidarity and helped to cut down some of the vines down there. But he's also been to other places, like Mount Desert Island in Maine, where he's seen Kiwi plants that were abandoned 30 years ago and never went crazy like the one in Lenox. I guess. But it is Kiwi. I mean, it tastes like a Kiwi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, again, this kind of a stupid comment. But, like, but. Sorry, was I not clear that these were, ki- <laughs> these were kiwis? Well, you were, you were. A lot of the things he's trying to breed into hardy kiwis are the kind of things that could actually make this problem go away. He wants the plants to put out less vine and to need to be babied in an orchard in order to put out large amounts of fruit. So, will hardy kiwi be like the black lotus? Promising but still shut down? Or like the Himalayan blackberry, a scourge across the whole region. I have food texture okay, so this is like a jam. Or will this wind up being more like 
the blueberry. Ubiquitous, delicious, profitable, and above all, tame. Well, oh, it's, well, it's sort of grapey. Mm, I kind of like it because it's bitter. In the back, there's a little bit of bitterness, but it's also sweet. I do not like the texture. <laughs> the texture and consistency freaks me out. But, but, but that's like you. That's totally me, and I'm a weirdo. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Maureen McMurray, Taylor Quimby, Logan Shannon, and Megan Tan. Our theme music was by Breakmaster Cylinder. This is our very first podcast, but there's lots more on the way. So if you haven't already, head on over to iTunes and hit the subscribe button. We're already there waiting for you. Our website, where you can see the pictures of the Wee Wee and the Wee Wee Apocalypse in Lennox Mass, is outsideinradio.org. We tweet at Outside In Radio. Thanks for listening.